You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by BetterHelp. Start living a happier life today and get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash mission log. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 424, Field of Fire. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we peer into every hidden corner of Star Trek, picking apart an episode, then taking our best shot at determining the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, Field of Fire, the one where Clarice gets help from Hannibal to get inside the mind of a killer. And we'll go on this manhunt in a moment, but first I'll tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now taking his best shot at the trivia for this week's episode, here is John Champion. Why, thank you for that, Norman. Trivia for today's episode, Field of Fire. It was written by Robert Hewitt Wolf, and hey, there's a name we have not seen in a while. You may recall that Robert got his start on TNG with his spec script for A Fistful of Datas. He worked on the first five seasons of DS9, then bounced over to Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, and now he is back. Why? Well, the DS9 staff was stretched thin at this point in the production of Season 7. Ira, Hans, Renee, all the usual suspects had their hands full, and they needed a script fast. Ira called up his old friend Robert, and they kicked around an idea about a serial killer on the station. It was going to be more of a procedural featuring our favorite constable, but it was Robert who saw the opportunity to play with one of the loose ends in the Dax symbiont story. It was directed by Tony Dow. Now, does that name sound familiar? This is his only Star Trek episode, but Tony did sit in the director's chair for shows like Babylon 5 and Swamp Thing, but wait, that's not where you know the name. Starting in 1957, Tony was Wally Cleaver, the Beeves, older brother on the classic sitcom Leave it to Beaver. Appropriately enough, Tony got his directing career kickstarted in 1988 with the new Leave it to Beaver, alongside his old castmates Jerry Mathers and Barbara Billingsley. We have a shout-out to the USS Grissom here, a different Grissom, presumably. The one we saw on screen in Star Trek III was a small scout ship on a scientific mission. This one is way bigger, and sadly, we never got to know her because she's gone. But it is worth pointing out again that this is a name used to honor astronaut Virgil Gus Grissom, who passed away with astronauts Chaffee and White in the Apollo 1 engine test disaster. Let's meet our guest stars. Don't get too attached to them, but first we meet Lieutenant Hector Ilario, played here by Art Chubadala. 
Art has more than a few sci-fi titles in his acting resume. He made guest appearances on Babylon 5, Dark Skies. He was in the 2005 film War of the Worlds, and you may have spotted him. Uh, He was one of the cadets in the DS9 episode Valiant. His professional debut was in the 1989 skateboarding epic Gleaming the Cube. Marty Rackham plays the Vulcan Chulak, and most of his on-screen work was uh, as an actor taking place in the 90s. He had recurring roles on Seinfeld and Jag. He even turns up in Married with Children, NYPD Blue, and Everybody Loves Raymond. Finally, the personification of Joran Dax is played by Lee Joseph McCloskey. You may recall that we've met Joran before. He inhabited Cisco once, and he was played by Jeff Magnus McBride in the episode Equilibrium. McBride wasn't available for production on this episode, and Lee had already made a guest appearance on Star Trek at the stages next door on Voyager in that show's third season. Now, Lee's done just about everything in his long career, from sitcoms to soap operas to miniseries. He had a long-running gig as Mitch Cooper on Dallas throughout the 80s, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention he appeared on both Love Boat and Buck Rogers in the 25th century, coincidentally in the episode Cruise Ship to the Stars. If this episode doesn't leave you with great new ideas for a Nerf gun, I don't think we watched the same episode. Prologue. Party time at Quarks. We're celebrating one Hector Ilario, a young lieutenant who just heroically piloted the Defiant in battle against the Jem'Hadar. There are toasts from Bashir and O'Brien and the whole gang. What there isn't is an invitation to come play in the hollow suite with the doctor and the chief because, you know, guy stuff. The night runs late. Hector closes the bar and stumbles back to his quarters with the help of Esri Dax. He mumbles a bit, referring to a photo of his colleagues who he wishes could see him now. He's sweet, she's gracious, and he's drunk. So Esri needs to get back to her quarters. A few hours later, she wakens to some disturbing news. Lieutenant Ilario has been killed. Act 1. Hector was killed in an unconventional way a close-range bullet from a prototype Starfleet weapon called a TR-116. You know, the kind you used to use when you're bullseyeing womp rats back home. Wait, sorry, wrong thing. This one was developed to be used wherever phasers wouldn't work, but the projectile was fired at close range, and yet there are no powder burns, which leaves a mystery on top of a mystery for Odo to solve. He'll need the chief's technical expertise as they try to ferret out the killer, and increase security around the station. Later at Quark's Bar, Bashir, O'Brien, and Esri lament the loss of their old friend, Lieutenant Ilario, who they barely knew. He really looked up to them in the few days he was on the station. And now, just like he was a few days prior, he's gone. So sad. Still hurting from the loss, Esri visits Hector's casket when Dr. Bashir wanders in. She tells the doctor that while she can't fathom that there's a murderer on board DS9, she knows all too well what it's like. One of the previous Dax hosts, Joran, was a murderer, remember? She still has that memory floating around, haunting her. As Esri walks through the corridors of the station, she encounters Odo and... Hector? Alive? No, it's a very bad dream of the dead lieutenant now taunting Esri about how she should know why this happened. In the dream, Esri sees blood on her hands and Hector's body now lying on the floor and suddenly she's visited by Joran? It's the embodiment of the Dax memories of its murderous host now here to help. He taunts Esri. She needs him, needs his insights to figure out who killed Hector. He knows how the killer thinks, and together they'll make him pay. So then, in the dream, he throws Esri off the promenade. That wakes her up. And just in time for a real-world call from Captain Sisko, there has been another murder on the station. Act 2. Meet the late Greta Vanderweg. 
a science officer for the last three years on DS9, and killed in the same way as Lieutenant Hilario. Projectile at close range. No powder burns or other physical clues. There's no obvious connection between the two victims, other than the fact that they're both Starfleet, which compels Sisko to ask Esri how good she is at forensic psychology. This also still leaves the technical mystery of how the killer is using a close-range projectile, why they would choose it, and how they would get it to work. Inspired by one of Dr. Bashir's stories about Davy Crockett doing a trick shot with a ricocheting bullet, Chief O'Brien sets up a little experiment. He invites Esri and Odo to wait in a lab with a melon while he stands outside in the corridor. At the right moment, the chief fires a TR-116 outside and somehow the melon in the lab explodes. How? A few tricks. First of all, an exographic sensor which allows the wearer to see through walls. Next, the rifle is fitted with a microtransporter which literally beams the projectile while being fired to its intended target. The transporter's signature is way too small to trace, but at least they have something to go on. Esri tries her best to make sense of the connection between the two victims, and so far, there isn't one. It's keeping her up at night, and Worf happens to spot her on the promenade. He's concerned about her safety during all this, and she tells him she could ask someone for help, but it would be dangerous. Worf says he knows she'll do whatever it takes. That is the Dax way, after all. So she does. Esri goes back to her room and summons up the memories of Duran that are still kicking around in the Dax symbiont. And before you can say imaginary friend, there's Duran, plain as day, talking to Esri like he's right there in the room. True to form, he taunts her again a little for unleashing his memories. He knows that she knows the killer's modus operandi, but if she really wants to understand, she'll have to become the killer. Act 3 Duran taunts Esri through an exercise with a TR-116 rifle. She picks it up, uses the exographic sensor to look around DS9 behind walls into people's quarters. When she spots someone who's an easy target, Duran tells her to do it and pull the trigger to really know what murder feels like. Esri can't, rips off the sensor headset and puts down the weapon. Psych! The gun wasn't loaded anyway. Duran was just messing with Esri to see if she could really feel what it's like to be a killer. They carry on the banter as they walk around the station. Even Quark has to question why Dax is talking to herself. They make their way to the quarters of the two victims, just looking for clues. There's the picture of Hector with his Starfleet mates. There's Greta with her husband. Still nothing of substance to reveal the killer's motivation. Both were Starfleet, but no connection other than the uniform. As Esri loses herself in thought at Quark's that night, there's Duran, taunting her yet again. If she thinks about quitting the investigation, it would mean she's a failure. She snaps that if she really wanted to find out what it means to be a killer, she would start with him. The tension mounts, and the whole mood of the bar is interrupted when security chases a young Starfleet officer who's running from them, Esri trips him, assuming it's the suspected killer, and when he fights back, she lifts a knife as if to stab him, with Duran egging her on. She almost does. Act 4. But thank goodness she didn't. Captain Sisko is not impressed. That officer was under suspicion, but he wasn't guilty. He accessed plans to the TR-116 because he likes weapons, but he was on Bajor when the murder occurred, and Esri nearly killed him. If she can't keep herself under control, she's off the case, but Esri insists that she can do it. Duran further teases Esri about Sisko's insufferable attitude, even suggesting that she should have told her captain about him. At a breaking point, Esri thinks she'll suppress the Duran memories, but it doesn't take. A call from Odo interrupts her with the bad news that we've got another corpse on our hands, this time a Bolian who was someone Esri actually knew. Well, Jadzia did. Same method of murder, still no clues, and no connections. Just a photo of that poor Bolian and his family laughing. Wait a minute. Laughing. Like the happy photo of Hector and his mates. And the photo of Greta and her husband. All the victims had photos of themselves sharing a laugh. So the killer hates these cans. 
wait, wait, sorry. The killer hates these photos. He hates the happiness that's on display, this egregious show of emotion. Hmm. How many Vulcans are on board DS9? Only 48. So now Esri and Joran thinks that's the place to start. Esri narrows the 48 down to 28 by focusing on the ones who have suffered some kind of loss. Coincidentally, she's in a turbo lift when a stern-looking Vulcan enters next to her. When Joran steps close to get a better look, Esri blurts out, What are you doing? But the Vulcan only sees her and wonders what it's all about. Joran closes in on Esri. This Vulcan is the one. This is the killer they've been looking for. Act 5. How does Joran know? Just look at him! That Vulcan has that look in his eyes, right? Esri speaks up that she's going to actually need evidence, so they'll start with a computer. That Vulcan was Chulak, former science officer on the Grissom. That ship was destroyed by the Jem'Hadar, and he survived along with only five other people. A painful loss that drove him to murder? Esri locates Chulak in his quarters and preps herself with a TR-116 and a sensor. She spots the Vulcan at his desk, looking through Esri's own service record. She also sees him reach for a weapon of his own and an exographic sensor. From a separate location, the two see each other and take aim. It's Joran who orders Esri to take the shot, which she does just a split second before Chulak fires and narrowly misses Esri. Esri rushes down to the Vulcan's quarters, picks up the weapon, and takes aim at the wounded officer. With Joran telling her to follow her instincts, Esri asks Chulak why he did what he did, and he replies, because logic demanded it. The gun still aimed right at him. Esri, rather than pulling the trigger, instead calls for a medical team, then notes the disappointment on Joran's face. Later in her quarters, it's for real this time. Before he goes away, Joran reminds Esri that he's still a part of her, and he won't be buried as deeply this time. Esri acknowledges, then speaks the trill incantation to make him go away. The end. Wonderful recap, John, and let's get started with the observations right out of the bat. You know what? I do love seeing me and Asian brother at the very beginning of any episode in Star Trek. Nice. Okay. And hey, Alario. You're the greatest helmsman of the day, like right now. Beers are being drank in your honor. You saved a lot of lives on the Defiant. Love you like a brother. But don't ever ask me to join a Holosuite adventure, my Holosuite adventure, because anything else, we'll roll out the red carpet. Yeah. We will pave the streets with gold-pressed latinum, except for yeah. that. They love this guy, except for except that. Except for that. I, I mean, it's sort of like, it's the equivalent of uh, you're hanging out at the bar, you're having a great time, you're drinking with friends, you know, uh, hey, I'm going to go see a movie. Cool. Can I go see the movie with you? No. No. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. it's just so, uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I'll pay your bar that, tab, I mean, I'll pay your taxi cab, I'll buy you dinner, you know, and then all yeah. of a sudden we part ways because that movie time, that's my time. That's my yeah, time. Yeah, especially especially for this hero that they love and he loves them in the full three days that they spent together. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it, really, this is such a TV trope. And there are many that we will bring up here, but such a TV trope that we introduce the new guy. We really build him up. Like, everybody loves him, so basically you know he's going to die. Like, that, that is his purpose in this episode. But, but why, I mean, why is this kid who's only been there for 10 days, piloting the most important ship in the area during wartime. Mm. I mean, it, it just seems like of all people to cast, you know, put, put the youngest guy, he's, I think in the script he's 22. Yeah, 22. Right? Yeah. I, I think in real life the actor is about 27, 28. But yeah, uh, uh, yeah, he's this 22-year-old kid. And if you really wanted to play that deep meta connection, he is somebody who served on the Valiant at one time, even though everybody on the Valiant died. <laughs> But ah, why him? Why him? And, uh, and and you mentioned the hollow sweet thing, and they tried to bring it back a little bit later because the chief says a couple of times we really should have let him go to the hollow sweet with us. I'm a little uncomfortable with the joke about the hollow sweet, mm -hmm. like like making that into a light, trying to mine some humor out of that. Um, I, I I mean, there's the idea that Bashir and O'Brien would shun the new guy anyway, but then to sort of kind of make light of it as if that would have 
avoided his death. I it just it did not sit well with me. Yeah, it it, it was a weird scene, and I, I think that yeah. Well, there are a lot of weird scenes in this, so. There are several. There is, and I will mention. I mean, I, I took a little delight in this. That uh, in the prologue and the teaser, they they made that little reference to the old Winston Churchill quote uh, attributed between Churchill and and an MP Bessie Braddock in 1946. The whole like you're drunk, well you're ugly, and in the morning I shall be sober. Mm-hmm. In all likely, like there is so much that is attributed to Churchill that he did not actually say, right. and and that one leans a little bit toward it actually did happen. But but more importantly, he would have lifted that line from W. C. Fields, who had a similar exchange in a movie in 1934. So at the very least, we could say that if that were real, then uh, Churchill was quoting Fields. I love how in, – in the research, because I looked that up too, and I love how mm-hmm. uh, now I can fit in the word apocryphal into my vocabulary. Uh, oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, I, I love that word so much, and and it does apply to so many things that we take absolutely for certain. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they're definitely like I said, this one. If you had the meter, this is like maybe fifty one percent. It actually happened, yeah. but that that is on the apocryphal meter <laughs> of apocryphal things. Yes. So I like the callback at the beginning during the investigation where Odo says the phrase or uses the words "powder burns." to describe mm. what isn't the residue that's on Ilario's person, especially around the wound area for a projectile to have been fired at such close range. And I like that he said, I know these things because of the my camera novels, the 20th century crime novels that I read. Mm-hmm. I think that's cool. Yep. I think that adds to a lot of his character. And I think that that's, you know, that's, that's just part of who he is because everyone's like powder burns. What are those? Yeah. And I, it was a nice mm-hmm. little detail. Now, Here's a nice little detail, like literally and figuratively, a minute. Now, wrap your brain around this. So you have <laughs> okay. a projectile. All right, I'm trying. Yeah. So think about a projectile, uh, a uh-huh. bullet, you know, and think about fusing a miniature transporter mode or node on that bullet mm-hmm. and then being able to use that as the means to be able to fire through something as the bullet's trajectory is reaching its apex it can dematerialize materialize and then continue its momentum that's a pretty advanced level of technology so why aren't you putting that on every single quantum torpedo on the defiant because that is literally the most surprise tactical weapon you could possibly get yeah oh oh, a hundred percent right yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And um, and the um, one thing, John, honestly, though, I'm so glad that they did not reference this at all because I don't think that my head would survive the eye roll whiplash that it would have received if they said that, <laughs> oh, by the way, this is like, you know, confiscated Section 31 technology that didn't go anywhere. Oh, oh right? Yeah, yeah. See, aren't you glad they haven't overplayed Section 31? Have they not, you know? though? <laughs> I, you know, we've gotten we've gotten very little. We've gotten very little mention. Of well, at least in, in this season, in this season for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I love uh, I love the look and feel of that rifle. It was a beautifully designed rifle. It looked like a sniper mm-hmm. rifle of the 24th century. I love the glorified tracking ball on the side, right next to the trigger. That was really really smart. I thought that was overall production wise a very good looking prop. Okay, but can you tell me please why are they everywhere? I mean, it's a prototype, and we abandoned it. We don't make it. You can literally just walk down the hall and get one anywhere in DS9. You can pick one up. You can use one. They're everywhere. They're lousy with TR-116. Yeah, it's, there's a weird throwaway line of dialogue saying that only a Starfleet officer has access to the replicator manual to recreate this because obviously – Replicators can make the components to make this weapon. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. people can, because obviously the chief could, because he made his own version of it, then what would happen if that secret got let out or leaked or lost? Yeah. Or, I don't know, ended up on Rom's pad and then the Grand Nagus finds it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then now everyone suddenly... in the alternate universe has a TR-116. All... <laughs> <laughs> they all have them, yeah. I will say this. I love the gag with the watermelon. Uh, or the the melon yeah. that they it was a great special effect, but it was a really cool looking 
purple watermelon with some green goo that oozes out of it. My compliments to the effects team. Really nicely done there. Uh, but why in that scene, why would the chief endanger Odo and Ezri like that for dramatic purposes? I mean, come on, dude, a little warning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he said like, okay, uh, you can't see me, but um, I've been practicing this. Put on the goggles, step away, step away again. No, no, the proper thing to do is you let them know ahead of time. Here's my theory. Here's how we're going to test it. <laughs> you are going to be well out of way. I'm not just going to surprise you with this thing. Yes. You yeah. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, speaking of other surprises, Morin has a date. It was nice to see that late night in the promenade <laughs> that uh, he was just wandering around with a date. She seemed to be having a lovely time, so I'm happy for both of them. Well, they were unaware that there was a transporter enhanced rifle bullet that was whizzing around mm-hmm. the station. Yeah. yeah. So until Esri held the rifle, I didn't really notice that that either Esri, the character, or Nicole was or is left-handed. And left-handed mm. is the sinister hand. So oh, yeah. holding the rifle with the sinister hand, doing sinister deeds. I'll get back to that Definitely in a little bit. Guy. Yeah, for okay. sure. Yeah. Uh, but also being sinister, speaking of that, isn't having X-ray technology, <clears throat> excuse me, exographic targeting technology, isn't that a breach of like every possible ethical private, privacy protocol like ever? I'm I'm so worried about We might have to come back to this in the next segment because I, that whole thing worries me. A lot, because why and how would you have those things just laying around? Mm-hmm. I, I think that that allows you to just look anywhere, anytime, at anybody. I, I have a big problem with but, that. But, you know, John, I mean, they're Starfleet officers, so that technology would never be abused, right? Unless, <laughs> no. unless you want to replicate it for whatever purposes. And then, of course, unless you're Vulcan. Oh, also, by the way, um, 47 out of 48 Vulcans, not bad. Nice nod to the number 47. Mm-hmm. Uh, for mm-hmm. the suspects. Yep. And yep. here's a weird thing, because they actually address it in the episode. When you're working on a criminal investigation, you might not want to have conversations with your imaginary friend everywhere, because it just makes you look suspicious. Yeah. Oh, and one last thing. Here's how you get ahead in criminal investigations. Just look into a possible suspect's eyes and say, it's him, because he looks shifty. But again, more on this later. <laughs> In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, and Lesh Dax shows up first. We will get right back to Field of Fire, but first a word from this week's sponsor. Is there something out there preventing you from achieving your goals, or perhaps you ask yourself what interferes with your happiness? To find more information on this, please check out betterhelp.com slash mission log. Yeah, so this week we're talking about BetterHelp, new sponsor for the show. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Certainly, Norman, you and I have talked about the power and value of therapy on our show in the past, so appropriate that we would welcome this new sponsor. You get to connect in a safe and private online environment so convenient you can start communicating in under 48 hours in fact so many people have been using better help that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states it's not a crisis line it's not self-help it is professional counseling done securely privately online you can send a message to your counselor at any time you'll get timely and thoughtful responses plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. You know, one of the things, John, that's plaguing a lot of people right now is still living in this this current stage of COVID-19 lockdown and suffering you know, the, the side effects of that kind of you know, isolation. So this service is available for clients worldwide. You can find the particular expertise that you need online so you don't have to limit yourself to the counselors that are located near you. And there are licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, 
anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem. That's right. And most importantly, anything that you share is confidential. So this whole thing is convenient, it is professional, it is affordable, and you can go check out the testimonials that they post daily on their website. And again, remember, this is not a crisis line. Uh, We do want to encourage you to start living that happier life today. As our listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash mission log. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash mission log. Okay, John, so here we are, and we're going to tackle the, the meat of this episode, mm. if you will. Or perhaps the melon that gets shot like me in this episode. <laughs> that, that, is, that is an oozy, splattery melon all over that lab. Somebody had to go clean that thing up. Now, eventually we will get to kind of like the crime drama aspect of this episode. But there's something mm-hmm. I think fundamentally important that I would love to ask you and I would love to ask our listeners because at the heart of it, it really bothers me that this element is something that's a dynamic now in Star Trek. So... When did Vulcans lose their renown in Star Trek? Mm. Is it solely in Deep Space Nine? I can't speak for episodes for series that I have not yet seen. Mm-hmm. Say we're, we'll be tackling Voyager and then later on Enterprise, and we can't talk mm-hmm. about those situations right now. Yeah. But up until this point, the Vulcans were this revered race. You know, obviously, um, the iconic Spock, Leonard Nimoy, you know, Sarek, you have all of these different Vulcan icons that that have colored our interpretation, our opinion of who the Vulcans are. But now, say with, in this season, Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite, we kind of uh, demonize the Vulcans in that episode. In this episode, he's the antagonist serial killer. So when did this happen to the Vulcans and, and why? You know, that is a great question. And and yes, it is worth reiterating because there are people finding Mission Log new all the time. And kind of the, the one rule that we always stick by <clears throat> is that we don't break the timeline. Since we've not covered in series order, Enterprise hasn't come along yet. So we'll pretend like we don't know anything uh, past this point in DS9. But what we've gotten out of the Vulcan experience in Star Trek so far, you mentioned it, Spock, Sarek get up to next gen and they made such a point in next gen of breaking with the traditional alien dynamic that we had in TOS that that started with that first season of saying well we're not going to have references to the original series we want to rewrite everything we want to have now the klingons are our allies because we're going to show how much has changed in 80 years um and we're not going to rely heavily on vulcans and yet Vulcans are still part of the fabric of the Federation. And by the time this episode had come out, I mean, you you think about it, First Contact had already come out. So we already are are given the story about the importance in the Vulcans to human history that gets us to that Star Trek future. So, you know, I know that we did talk about this in Take Me On to the Hollow Suite. And I, I find myself giving them at least a little bit of defense saying that Vulcans put on the facade of logic and yet they will still logic themselves into and out of the worst possible positions when given a chance. And we know that there is a lot of seething, untapped emotion in the Vulcan psyche and they have to do everything they can to keep that tamped down. Because according to Spock, if they didn't, as they were in their past, they were savage and brutal and would nearly have wiped themselves out. So I like the idea of playing with that. I'll I'll even say, you know, I think one of the most brilliant uses of playing with that was in the episode Sarek in Next Gen, where you see a 200-year-old Sarek who is dealing with dementia and all that emotion is bubbling up because he can't maintain his logic anymore. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's there, but you're making a very good point, which is to say that when we have seen Vulcans on DS9, it has only been in the worst possible circumstance. And the, the, you know, the pettiness of the captain in Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite and presumably that 
now dispersed to his entire crew. And now we meet one other Vulcan, because we don't see any of the other 47 Vulcans, who is a killer with, well, we'll get to his motivation in a little bit. Um, I'm, yeah, I, I, I'm maybe not as disturbed by this as you are, but I want to see better Vulcans. Well, I think what's disturbing about this, at least for me, mm-hmm. is that uh, Chulak doesn't ex- exhibit signs of that type of psychosis that would that you would see like in a serial killer, which means that he's not as maybe technically quote unquote unhinged as the story leads you to believe. But let's let's take it from the point of context of when Esri captures him. So there's a line of dialogue when after Esri uses the exogenic device to shoot Mm -hmm. him across the habitat ring that's all in the plot if i said anything wrong go watch the show but (laughs) esri says she's standing atop of him with the rifle pointed at him and said why did you do it and he said chulak said because logic demanded it and i have to ask everyone out there what logic thank you okay you see this is the risk that we run with an episode like this when we do Mission Log, which is that, A, we don't read each other's notes, and B, we run the risk of this section of the show bleeding into the next segment of the show mm-hmm. with our total summary, how do we feel about it, does it hold up, what are the morals, meanings, messages, etc. And that is something that bothered me to no end because I think it's fascinating when you – to use a word. Hey, I think it's fascinating when – You take a Vulcan like Spock, iconically, using logic to justify what could actually just be an emotional response, the Mm -hmm. compassionate response. Or you see some other Vulcans who will use logic to do the non-compassionate thing, which we sometimes see in a guy like Sarek, you know. That's fine because we spent some time with those characters and we've gotten to know like where is their moral center and how would we challenge ourselves to say like, okay, how do we justify an unpopular choice, an unpopular decision? Um, here's, Here's a Vulcan doing such and we agree or we disagree, but at least we can see a little bit of complexity and depth in that decision making. In this, it just really felt like we're putting the word logic there because this is a Vulcan. Mm-hmm. And we haven't actually developed enough the why or wherefore about his behaviors. So if we just say logic, it telegraphs to the audience that it's a Vulcan. Well, this it, is a that, that frustrates me to no end. Well, this is a very much of a bottled episode because when you take this episode in in the context of what you see, you don't really need to know or you really don't know or learn anything about Vulcans. There is nothing earned with that statement. Yeah. So if you've never seen Star Trek before, all this episode leaves you with is a very nebulous response. And for, for Vulcans, if you followed Star Trek throughout its history, or even if you know just a little bit about the Vulcans culture... Logic is everything to them. This is their mm-hmm. mode of this is their mode of being. It keeps them from becoming savage. But this earns none of that. No. And it was if I can say this mm-hmm. on on our podcast without you, you, you know, you, getting you can say whatever you want, man. You're, yeah. That line it's this has never happened to me before in all of yeah. the Star Trek that I've ever watched. That line pissed me off. I, it I, flat I, out I, pissed period me period off period. I back you. I'm 100% in that. Yes. And I have three possible reasons why. Okay. One, bad writing. Mm-hmm. Two, worse writing. Three, mm-hmm. terrible freaking writing. <laughs> all right? That's it. Yeah. That's what it all boils down to. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, let, let me say this. Um, Robert Hewitt Wolf has written some fantastic Star Trek. And I like him very, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I like him very much, and and I like his writing very much. 
everybody's entitled to an episode that doesn't come together. As we know, this isn't, you know, Star Trek isn't a venture that is done at least in this time that these shows are being done by one person. Uh, you have a writing team that is pulling something together, sometimes under terrible circumstances and terrible uh, deadlines. And ultimately what you get on screen though is a result of what you had on the page. And if what you have on the page doesn't hold up, it's not going to hold up on screen either. This is one of those situations where that happened. And, you know, we got a piece of feedback that uh, we will certainly address in uh, one of our upcoming online discussions uh, that uh, called us out for calling out the writing. That's what we do. <laughs> you know, we praise the writing when it's great. And we can condemn the writing when it does not live up to the already high standards that the, the show and the series have set for themselves. It happens. Some of the best Star Trek writers have also been some of the worst Star Trek writers. It doesn't mean that they lack talent. It means that the situation that got them to that script was not conducive to cranking out a great script. This is one of those. Well, that's um, yeah. That's mm -hmm. I mean, that's fair to say, John. I I just wanted like yeah. caveat that by saying that this is my criticism of it is a snapshot criticism in time of mm -hmm. that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm going to tell you another scene that drove me a little crazy. Not as crazy as that one because I, I think that for that to be the climax of the episode, for that to be the big reveal of the episode, it completely crumbles apart. It undermines. Anything good that had happened in the episode up until then, which is not a lot, quite frankly. Um, and one of those not-so-good scenes is the scene between Worf and Esri on the promenade, which I feel like is completely and utterly wasted. I felt like we did not need a scene where Esri tries to corner Worf into the, you see, you still care about me. It didn't feel true to her. And it didn't feel true to uh, Worf's reaction either. And uh, so that that bothered me quite a bit in that. And second of all, Worf basically tells Esri it's her mission to solve this. And I'm sorry, but it isn't. <laughs> and for him to just essentially say to her, like, well, even if you endanger yourself, eh, that's what you do. It was just completely uh, an awful way to lure her into this uncomfortable and dangerous situation and put all that burden, all that responsibility on her, uh, which I felt was inappropriate, particularly if he just led into that scene saying but denying, I still care about you, eh, but go do this dangerous thing. I mean, technically, it's Odo's job to solve the crime. Thank you. It's his job to solve, you know, murders yes. on the station and why she isn't checking with him at a moment's notice saying, aha, I think I figured something out. She doesn't have to reveal how, but he needs to know it's his responsibility. This 100% would have been an opportunity to have some scenes between Odo yeah. and Esri, not Worf and Esri. Mm -hmm. You don't exactly. need it. You don't need it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're 400-plus episodes in a mission log. This is what we do. Go back to episode one, and you'll see that we constructively critique Star Trek, all of Star Trek. The security, privacy issues, breaches in the future. I'm very concerned about this because this is another one of those situations where in a fully realized world that is DS9, within a fully realized universe that is Star Trek, when you start throwing in technologies that undermine and rewrite the whole thing, it, it, it's asking a bit much of the audience, especially when we know that we probably won't see that thing again because it fundamentally changes what we know about that world. We don't have cameras in hallways on DS9 or any starship for that matter, but we do have devices laying around readily accessible that literally see through walls. This is a step beyond, you know, what uh, Rick Deckard has where you can look at a photo and say enhance and go around the corner and then boom, you get an image of a replicant. Plus, I, I, again, no cooperation here, no uh, communication with law enforcement. I felt like as much as you and I felt like uh, Odo is missing from this, Cisco is missing from this. 
Cisco's got three dead people on his station. The buck stops there. Three dead and officers, one who piloted yes. the Defiant. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Right? So why Starfleet hasn't shown up and said, uh, uh, Benjamin, uh, we need to take you away or you need to fix this now. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a huge oversight in the way this episode is structured, uh, that it, it's a lot of asks of the audience, a lot of suspension of disbelief about the order, the motivations, and then the technology, which is obviously going to be a major part of Star Trek storytelling. So um, are we done here? Should we just move right on to the wrap-up? Because I feel like if we don't, <laughs> we're just going to headlong go into it. Well, I have one I have one tidy way of maybe wrapping this all up with the technology. Okay. Because with technology with Star Trek fans, it's something that Star Trek fans really latch onto. If there's something mm-hmm. that's presented in such a way where okay, we can, we as fans can try and and dissect what's being used, why it's been created, et cetera, et cetera. This technology is so powerful, not just the X-ray device, but the 116 and the yeah. transporter bullet. Why isn't any of this stuff addressed in terms of the highest security clearance level possible? And why yeah. isn't Odo all over, like, I want all of those weapons cataloged, locked away, mm-hmm. destroyed, whatever because these are out there now and yeah. what is the chief just going to like leave it on his desk and say like oh yeah it's just a thing that i did for this other thing and uh, you know i'll just throw it over in a crate right you know okay i i will there is one modern parallel as you're describing this there's one modern parallel that i will say is infinitely more interesting than anything we got out of this episode. And that is the idea that as 3D printing technology becomes more ubiquitous, there's a real worry about patterns of weapons showing up online that people could download, print, and then conceivably create a weapon, a projectile firing weapon that has, uh, you know, if not deadly force, at least injurious force, that could be snuck through uh, metal detectors, you know, mm-hmm. it could be used in places that uh, that otherwise uh, you wouldn't be able to get them into. And there is something interesting from the point of view about, okay, is it the information itself that is illegal and dangerous? Is it the creation of the device that should be monitored that is in itself uh, dangerous? Or is it, is it, too far past the point when somebody actually has one in their hands or in their pocket or in their briefcase and walks through that metal detector and could potentially use it. There are all kinds of interesting questions there about intellectual property of something that has an intent that uh, could be dangerous and deadly. Um, This episode does not get into any of that. (laughs) It just assumes that um, these things exist. They're out there. The station is lousy with them, not just the weapon itself, but I'm just going to go straight up and call the uh, uh, exographic viewer a weapon as well, because we haven't seen any good use out of that other than this very terrible thing. There is actually a valid use for the thing that sees through walls. Maybe someone's got their screen on and they're watching a better episode. You know, Norman, I like to think that every week on Mission Log, we're sort of walking into our own field of fire by uh, getting our opinions and thoughts out there on every Star Trek episode ever made, and then letting our audience mull that over and see if they agree or disagree with our assessment. And in the end, it is time for that final assessment on an episode, seeing whether it holds up and what are the morals, meanings, messages, or lessons that we could take away that apply to our daily lives. So, Norman, I feel like you and I both were on a roll in the last segment. I want to uh, kick it back over to you and see if Field of Fire holds up. How do you feel about this one? Well, John, if if my thoughts were the exogenic device and my words were the T116 style of projectile, uh-huh. then that's how I feel about stepping into the Field of Fire because sometimes you have to be brutally honest about one's own opinion. 
Mm-hmm. You have to, or else you're not mm-hmm. being honest about anything. And let's go all the way back to Prodigal Daughter, uh, an episode where you and I had uh, differing opinions. Yep. And I want to bring up a phrase that you used because I thought it was applicable to that episode. And you described Prodigal Daughter as the quote-unquote Columbo-style story. You know, mm-hmm. you have the ne'er-do-well investigator with the cigarette in his hand going, yeah. wait, 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 yeah, wait. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just one more thing. Yeah, just yeah. one more thing. Yeah. <laughs> if that's the Columbo-style story, then I have to equate this to be the Silence of the Lambs meets CSI type of story. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is why it doesn't hold up or stand the test of time, because it is simply a well-produced derivative of those classic types of stories. We don't really learn anything new here from a narrative standpoint or really from a stylistic standpoint. So there isn't really a great deal of making me want to a revisit this episode or even really be suggest this episode for somebody to watch. Because if I did, you don't learn anything about Vulcan culture that would logic away the logic line that Chulak, you know, uh, espoused, uh, espoused at the end. So what is there in this episode for me to hold on to when it comes to recommending this or thinking that it has withstood the test of time? So Lee Joseph McCloskey is the standout element in this episode. I mean, I actually did believe in the that kind of that sexual predatory chemistry and, the, and that psychological intimacy between Duran and Esri. But I also believe that between, say, Hannibal Lecter or any type of trope of that nature. And he did a great job at it. But overall, much like Odo's 20th century crime pulp novels, this episode is fairly on the rails. It's a paint-by-numbers crime drama. And it doesn't really add any more to helping DS9's overall war story. Remember that? The war story? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, right. The absolute war. Mm -hmm. So you have these bottled episodes that are breaking up this intermittent serialization for which... DS9 has been famously described by mm-hmm. its fan base. Now, I think that the hallmark of whether or not an episode stands the test of time is engaging in this mental exercise of if you remove the episode from the overall timeline of the in-universe narrative and see whether or not its absence affects any of the main plot line or even any of the main character growth or even, you know, secondary cast of characters growth. If you do so and it does, then that's fine. That means that there's an episode in there that makes sense for it to be there. If not, then you can easily make the argument that in this case of this episode, it affects none of it. Yeah. So if you pull it out of the timeline, what does it change? Nothing. Yeah. That's my problem. Well, look, I I agree with you. And and I think part of the problem with an episode like this is, is that it does poorly what Star Trek should do well. And that's that... I've said before on Mission Log that I feel like uh, Star Trek is a bendy enough, flexible enough format that you can tell different types of stories in this universe. You can do comedy. You can do war stories. You can do uh, uh, fantasy stories. You can do emotional drama. You can do romance. You can do all these things. And yes, every now and then you could do a mystery story, a murder mystery story, uh, even a procedural type thing. But the problem is when you do that, the audience that is clued into what Star Trek is, is sitting there watching saying, all right, but what's Star Trek going to do about this? What is Star Trek's take going to be that is different from Law and Order or different from something else that I've already seen? And in that case, the bar is set a little bit higher to say, well, if we're going to go that route and it's going to look like one thing, I want the twist that makes Star Trek stand apart and not just be any other show and not just be Law and Order in space or you know something else just with a with a different backdrop. And when it comes to this one in particular, I, I I can't even begin to tell you everything that's wrong with this episode, but but. This is my show and it's my job, so I'm going to anyway. All right, so buckle up. Um, why, why is Esri left alone doing this nonsense with her homicidal personality? This is Odo's territory. And furthermore, if Esri is going to do something like this, she needs to do so with the cooperation and understanding of someone like, I, I don't know, everybody who is looking out for her. And that means 
everybody. It's Odo, it's Cisco, it's Bashir looking out for her physical safety and well-being. And it is Worf, too, not just with some blow-off scene with Worf saying, oh, I care about you, go do that dangerous thing, see ya. Another problem here, we're not invested in the characters who are getting killed. And I know that that's a problem uh, that will just always be apparent in a series like this because our characters have to be there from week to week. But there is also every now and then a show that comes along that actually introduces characters who you do care about and then you care about them when they're gone. Um, and this episode, the way this was put together, did not get to that point. They did try with Alario, to be fair. They did. They tried. They did. Yeah. But it was so superficial. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the only... only character. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'll also say that there is no special insight that is needed from Duran that we couldn't get from anywhere else. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I have a problem with this idea that the only way, the only possible way to crack this is you have to break the psychology of one of our characters uh, to become like the killer to actually get there. I, I don't think that's the case. I'm, I'm just going to disagree with that did, wholesale. Did, did anyone ever want to ask Garrick maybe about <laughs> hello how to get into hello? the psychological you know yeah. foots, uh, shoes of a killer? Yeah, he is there after all. Um, but yeah, they they wanted so badly. You called it. They wanted so badly for this to be Silence of the Lambs, and it falls far short of that. And yes, the TV trope. See, you have the annoying trope of, you know, the character who can't be seen, um, which every time that happens in a show, you're sort of there as an audience going like, oh, okay, well, Quark, Armin, as the actor, is just walking up there and looking through that character to talk to Esri, to talk to Nikki, as the actor, you know, and it's just, you're sort of doing that in your head. So it becomes an annoying trope and it becomes mm -hmm. an annoying choice, you know. And it just feels like DS9 has now too frequently in this season turned to episodes of Columbo when they run out of ideas. And I don't think we've had nearly this many murder mystery episodes on any other preceding Star Trek combined. I love Esri, but this episode is unnecessary. She can actually grow as a character in relation to the other characters on DS9, not just because she gets an Esri highlight episode. It, it, it seems to be an odd choice to just sort of say, well, we need to push her character forward, so let's just go do something completely different with her. No, you have this other great cast around her already. And I will say that they completely ignored what is the more interesting story here. A Vulcan serial killer? Uh, okay, it, th that is a bit over the top, but now I'm interested where you can go with that. And instead, we just have this appeal to logic, and I'm saying that with finger quotes for those of you who can't see me, an appeal to logic as his motivation, which explains absolutely nothing. And I'm sorry, but just because you drop the L word in there doesn't make this anything that has insight about our main Vulcan character. And worst of all, there are no stakes to anything that happens here. We don't think for a minute that Esri will just, you know, unload a rifle on anyone out of malice. And we know she'll be the better person in the end and not kill the wounded Vulcan, even if he was a threat. It's just Duran chewing scenery. And then that just makes it a pointless diversion. So this episode is a failure. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, season seven, uh, as we build up to the end of DS9... We have had a series of failed episodes back to back to back, and this is one of them. Uh, so I'm sorry. Go ahead, Norman. No, I was just gonna take a just gonna give you a bit of a pause here so that you can mm -hmm. take a breath. Mm. And okay, yeah. And uh, let's. It is a very difficult episode to try and be constructively critical about, but. I think that you made incredibly fair points. I think that they're very defensible. But let's get into what we ultimately get to at the end of uh, our discussion. And after a deep breath, for you and me both, <laughs> what is or what are the morals or meanings or messages that you were able to find in this episode, if any? Well, I, I think that's a big problem with this episode because it wants to do something by pushing uh, Esri Dax 
forward. Yes, I understand that we've teased at the end that Duran's psyche can be more prominent now than he was before because he was repressed by uh, Curzon and Jadzia. So there is some interesting possibility to mine there. But let's just take this episode on its own. Let's not think about what could or might happen down the road in the remaining uh, 13 episodes. If I were to try to be generous here with this episode, I could try to make some parallel to The Enemy Within, one of the all-time great Star Trek episodes. Kirk faces the worst part of himself and understands that the positive and negative impulses within him have to work together for him to be a whole person. In this episode, Esri faces the destructive evil part of her combined Dax personalities in order to – who am I kidding? It's not actually necessary. She doesn't need to go through any of this, and it's not a learning experience for her. It is cruel to the character, and it is purely out of convenience for the plot. Your Honor, I rest my case. Well, I'm so glad that you and I appreciate that uh, I wasn't drinking anything at the time when you subverted your own copy. So thank you for that, because I have done that to you far too many times on an episode. Uh, You know, if I were able to try and and find a moral or meaning or messages, I'm kind of like where you are when it when it comes to this kind of enemy within type of mentality. Uh, I mean, there's this whole, quote unquote, beware the darkness inside of all of us kind Mm -hmm. of kind of trope. I think that there's something that that we find very stimulating and fascinating about this darker character that that may reside inside of us. Maybe that's why we love watching Mirror Universe episodes, or maybe that's mm-hmm. why that the actors like taking on or tackling those characters because they can play in that mental space of who am I in as a, as a darker, more aggressive, more violent version of this character or myself. So there's a Dr. Freud I think that we can employ here. Dr. Mm-hmm. Sigmund Freud. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's the balancing between the id, the ego, and the superego. I'm no psychologist. I did look this up on Wikipedia. I'm using it as character reference for this episode because I need to try and find something positive uh, to talk about at the end of this episode. But in relationship to the characters, you have Duran, who is the id of this this pyramid equation of the id, the mm-hmm. ego, and the superego. And he is kind of like that that sexually aggressive, predatory type of essence that's within the Dax symbiote, not Esri, the Dax mm-hmm. symbiote. The Dax is the, is the entire totality of that personality. Mm-hmm. Esri being the ego, the reactionary force of all of these different types of mentalities that are preying upon her. And then you have the superego, which is this quote-unquote Starfleet moral training and discipline that allows her to be able allows Esri to be able to tamp down and filter what Duran demands of her at this particular time in the investigation. So I found that a little bit fascinating because at the end she could have straight out murdered Shulak in a mm-hmm. rage of her her id going haywire, but that's just that's me just playing again. That's 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 bartender psychology and you know that's at least a stab at trying to find a moral meaning or message in this episode. (laughs) But in the end though, I think that she did a, she did a right thing. Esri did the right thing and not, not um, succumbing to her baser instinct or baser id and Duran in this case, by not murdering Chulak. But overall though, it was a very cursory top level exploratory investigation of something that, I think could have really been interesting to watch if, in fact, there wasn't a lot of external pressures of trying to pump out a script to yeah. get it to this level. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's one of those unfortunate situations where production reality catches up with uh, – maybe higher or greater uh, uh, creative instinct, and the two just don't match up. And then you end up with an episode like this. And it doesn't mean that we're you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater here. There's certainly a lot of good Trek before and after this. Uh, we just hit a point where with this episode, uh, couldn't handle it. I'm just going to guess that this is probably one that will not be in rotation for you, for you when you go back and rewatch DS9 someday. 
Well, I, I don't know, because I really want to build one of those prototype T116s because <laughs> everyone's got to have one, right? I, yes. And when you build it, I hope you're wearing your uh, exographic sensor when you do so. I'll wear that with or without the rifle because actually that's the that's actually the more terrifying piece of technology in this episode. <laughs> it is. Right? It is. You can't shoot a bullet through a wall without being able to see through the wall. Uh, oh, writers, uh, what you have done with this one. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Chimera. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky. Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. Plot twist. If you replicate your own TR-116, it's fitted with a safety feature that only allows you to target fruits and vegetables. Hasta la vista melons. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.